Today on The Black Goat, standing out for standing up, how to work with and around people who disagree about how to do science, and a letter about political diversity in psychology. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with Alexa Tullett and with award-winning podcaster. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure so, you guys have won a few awards, too. Samin, <laughs> uh, um, we have some good news that uh, Samin insisted we didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, no, we're very, we're very happy for Samin and, and excited that Samin won an award, uh, the Lemur Rosenthal Prize for Open Social Science from the Berkeley Institute, or sorry, Berkeley Initiative for the Transparency for Transparency in the Social Sciences. Um, should I do that over? I messed up the name. Of the <laughs> it's <board>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so excited, Samin. I'm so excited that you won the award. Um, alongside Daniel Lockins, who shout out to Daniel, uh, um, the two of you uh, are, are sharing. And Erica Boransky, awesome. right? Um, yeah. So okay. there's like a senior award and then junior awards. And Erica right. Boransky Eric, and I, Charlie Ebersole. Yep. Erica Bransky, Charlie Ebersole, Ranjit Lal, Joshua Polanin. Karthik Ram and Sozik Elsa Wang Sun. Uh, I hope I said those names right. Um, I didn't practice them before <laughs> <laughs> the podcast. You're messing so everything the up. Emer- the awardees, the, emerg- the name emerging of Emerging researchers and uh, uh, Samin and Daniel won the Leaders in Education Award. And that's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, congratulations. So do you do you get to like do they have a ceremony? Do you get to go and like give a speech? Do you get yeah, to Yeah, so like, I have this conundrum. There's, to... So there's a conference <laughs> and they're presenting the awards and doing something like some stuff at the conference, but it's on the last day of my class, which is the day I usually talk about replicability. <laughs> so I have to decide like I'm trying to try to push the replicability up to the second to last lecture and maybe have the TAs do a review session the last lecture. But then I'm like I'm I'm like shortening class by a day. I don't know. I have. A, I don't know what I'm gonna do. That yeah. is, that is some deep irony that yeah. you're skipping. Yeah. If you were to skip teaching replicability to go get a leaders in education <laughs> yeah, right. award for your work in replicability. Now we know that she's only in replicability for the prestige for the awards. Yeah. It's, it's only only for the prizes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's that's really cool. And and uh, um, yeah, and it's nice to you know we've we've talked about this a little bit with Sips. It's nice to to have awards for people doing this kind of work I mean it's good for you but it's also good for the area of work that you do right it it sort of raises the visibility yeah Um, you know it's yeah it's it's cool to look at like who's gotten the awards in the past years and it's just really neat to be in that community and I hope it continues to grow and I hope there are more and more ways to recognize people for doing these kinds of things and it was really cool that another open science person who like practices and and talks about open science won an even bigger award the MacArthur award that goes by the genius award um betsy levy Palak won that and that was that was so cool because talk about like recognition for people who are doing all the right things and doing research really well like that's a big carrot right this yeah this was a big week for for awards and i i yeah betsy yeah this it was really exciting to see that yeah for the reasons you said betsy's someone she does amazing work and she's someone that has incorporated open science practices. You go to her website, 
and you scroll down through the list of publications and it's like, here's the link to the registry for this, here's the link to the registry for that, here's the data and code for this, et cetera. Um, and, and she's doing really cool work. Yeah, and she's seems like a really nice person who's like really humble and I don't know. Yeah, I like, will say that I think it's like a, a little bit inconsiderate that you're like publicly expressing such a girl crush on somebody that's not me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess if it's going to be anyone. Well, if you win a I'm MacArthur okay Genius Prize, maybe we'll we'll talk. I guess I have to win the Nobel Prize now. And yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Is that even better? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, we don't have a Nobel. Uh, so I, I posted a snarky tweet earlier this week, which was not a dig at Richard Thaler, but uh, it, I think I didn't think it through well enough because people seemed to think it, it was. But I made a joke about how, like, you know, um, the Nobel, there's a Nobel in economics, uh, um, and it keeps going to people doing psychology work, and we should have a Nobel in psychology so I can write papers about supply and demand um, <laughs> and try to win. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's so, so it was a good week, actually, for psychology. Thaler uh, uh, very openly acknowledges um, that he draws on psychology research. He's very, uh, I think, uh, um, appreciative and, and, and good about that, and he... You know, he won a Nobel Prize this week for for his work, and so yeah, a good a good week for awards for psychologists or people doing psychology. Um, yeah, if people aren't familiar with Betsy's work, I think it's it's worth going and looking at because it is. I mean, I just every time one of her papers comes out, my jaw hits the floor. So she, one of the the projects that she did was this anti-bullying intervention in New Jersey with something like 50-some schools where they did a randomized intervention where they were, you know, a lot of her work is about social norms. It, it was kind of interesting, actually, after our last episode with Anna Alexandrova, where we were talking a lot about changing norms in, in science, and then, you know, Betsy's work is about how you can produce social change through norms. And so, you know, this this massive, incredible anti-bullying intervention that they did in New Jersey. She's done field experiments in Rwanda, looking at how you know radio soaps can uh, um, affect people's intergroup prejudice. I mean, going into a country where there was a genocide not very long ago and trying to get the two groups on the opposite sides to to sort of reduce prejudice. It's just amazing work and. Uh, rigorous and interesting and and yeah so shout out to Betsy and since we've talked about imposter syndrome before I have to just say like it was so weird when I got to invite her to be an AE for SPPS and this wasn't just Betsy like anytime I get to invite somebody and be like I'll be your editor-in-chief and you can be an AE I'm like (laughs) what the fuck like with any of the AEs it could easily be the other way around and they're Uh, so nice about it and so yeah it was really cool to get to I get, I'm getting to know her through that too, and she's doing a great job there. And I'm just really proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we better move on before Alexa. Expl- no. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa's sitting here you like can't smiling. See right she's now, totally, yeah, she's totally joking life. before, but uh, you know, it's just yeah, the idea of you know. Um, anyway, okay. So <laughs> why don't we move on to uh, to our letter? Um, uh, Alexa, do you want to read us the letter? I do. Um, all right. So the letter begins: Hi, black goats. I'd like you to address the issue of political diversity in social personality psychology. As a graduate student with strong social conservative positions, I constantly feel out of place or that I should just assume everybody else is a strong liberal. Our lab does research on motivated reasoning and morality and politics, so this issue is fairly crucial. Actually, I had to come out of the closet to my advisor, and it went well. 
Uh, later, I started feeling comfortable enough to speak out in research meetings and social events, which was not always easy. Luckily enough, most of the faculty in the department are really aware of the issue, and they actually value and try to encourage challenging diverse opinions. But every time I go to SPSP or receive APA or APS notifications, I feel again in the deprecated minority. Um, sincerely, Anonymous. Um, so yeah, I think this is um, this is an issue that's gotten some attention in the last couple of years. But I still think that this like conservatives are a minority in academia, and it's a minority group that we basically um, largely ignore and don't really like. We don't or worse. really we yeah make we don't, fun like, of worry or worry about the prejudice against that group or um, or just yeah acting like that group doesn't exist. Um, so I think this is a really good um, issue to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think something that is, there, there, there has been a lot of discussion around political diversity in psychology and, and sort of you know, liberals and conservatives as well as other kinds of political variation. And I think for, for me, um, it's hard to, so, so I, I actually got into a, a Twitter conversation with Lee Jessam earlier this week about, you know, sort of not about graduate students in psychology, but, you know, about some other issues. And, you know, there, there are, I think, real disagreements among people about sort of the, the you know, kind of the state of things and, and the causes. But I, I think it's, it's, it's just a fact that in, in numerical terms, um, conservatives are a numerical minority in psychology and in academia. And regardless of your position on, like, you know, our college campuses to whatever, lefty or whatever, I think everybody should be able to recognize the reality of this. And, and you don't have to I, – I sort of draw a line at connecting this issue to things like race and gender because those have very strong and clear connections to structural inequality everywhere else. Um, this is something that's kind of distinct to academia – is that, you know, it's not like conservatives are lacking power in other parts of life. Um, but it is true in academia, and I think it's something, yeah, we need to talk about um, because we ought to have, you know, I mean, uh, to me, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, we've talked before about, like, you know, when we re review science, you should review the science and not the scientist. And um, that, you know, that everybody has standing in science to talk about evidence and talk about logic. Um, and so the fact that of someone's personal political beliefs, I guess, on one layer shouldn't be relevant to that. But it's also the case that, you know, we resolve things through bringing lots of different viewpoints out and then adjudicating them with evidence and logic. And those viewpoints need to be present in order to, to be part of that conversation. Yeah. So I think it is important to, to think about, like, how can this be a comfortable place for people regardless of their yeah. beliefs and background? I think there's two separate issues and they're they connect to each other but one is on, when in the scientific realm you know is there a political bias and are we harsher on scientific claims that are not 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 uh what liberals want to believe and, and lee and other people have written a lot about that and i think that's a real phenomenon and but i think another thing that we don't talk about as much is in the social realm and this person talks about like at, at events and department you know social events I've heard a lot of people, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this too, like make fun of conservatives or Republicans or things like that. Um, and that we really need to crack down on that. Like there's no reason why we should be doing that. And so that's easy to say, but then I've, so I feel like I was 
pretty aware of that early on as a professor and I try not to do that. But then the Trump situation makes it super complicated because I don't want to not be allowed to make fun of things that Trump (laughs) says and does not. Yeah. And so then that's complicated, but I think, so even for those of us who, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that my position is ethically defensible that I want to be allowed to make fun of Trump, even at professional social events. Maybe that, maybe I'm wrong about that, but even if you want to hold on to that, there's still a distinction between that and making fun of conservatives or Republicans or certain policy views or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like that's just such an easy thing we could do at least at the very least, like we should also right. address some of the other issues, but that one I see all the time. And yeah, like I've known graduate students who are conservative and I, I f- my heart goes out to them. And when I hear stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of liberals probably have this or just people, I think I would say you could generalize different situations have this experience that they'll talk about political issues differently if they know that there is someone there who disagrees with them. And it sounds like maybe that was a little bit of what this letter writer's sort of uh, experience of, of disclosing first to his lab and then to, to the department um, and other faculty was that they, they received it very well. And my guess would be that they probably now talk differently and so one, you know, one thing that I think people in academia should do about a whole variety of viewpoints, you know, and perspectives, not just political, but others, is to, when you're speaking in public, to say things, whether it's teaching, whether it's giving a talk or whatever, is to, to say things that you'd be comfortable if they were, you know, yeah, if, if you knew that someone from a different point of view was, was there. And so right. if you're, you know, if you're comfortable, like, taking a dig at Trump because you do that in front of a... I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not saying this is necessarily an ethical principle. I think mm-hmm. this is more like a kind of personal signal. That's at least a good starting point, right? right. It's like, if, you, if you'd if you be comfortable with this, um, you know, or if you'd be uncomfortable with it, then maybe change. If you'd be comfortable with it, you still might have to look and right. say, is it still okay? But the discomfort should be a signal. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I've thought about those kinds of things, um, especially teaching um, in Alabama, because I know that a lot of the undergraduate students in my classes are conservative. Um, and graduate students um, are probably, there's probably more conservative graduate students here than elsewhere. I actually don't know for sure. Um, and yeah, I think, I think your point, Sanjay, about sort of like, yeah, raising this issue and and being careful when you're talking publicly. Um, I've sort of debated what the best way to go about that is. And, and one thing I do more often now, and I'm not sure if this is uh, a good answer is to sort of like be pretty upfront about it. So, so I often tell my classes, um, that, you know, my political views are fairly liberal. I tell my graduate classes and my undergraduate classes. Um, and, I think one of the reasons that I do that is to sort of like table my own bias and not sort of like present myself as this totally agnostic, um, you know, balanced person when obviously like my, you know, discussion of all kinds of issues is going to be colored by that. So, I mean, of course, presenting that as just like sort of like my own bias and, you know, emphasizing the importance that of being like tolerant of everybody's positions and, you know, willing to openly discuss them. Um, but one thing that I think, I think people, it's easy to feel like you can be, um, sort of like open-minded, 
unbiased person and we just we can't really um and i think this becomes really relevant when you start talking about doing political psychology research right so um the letter writer was talking about being in a lab that does research on political psych and morality um and it's just impossible to do that kind of research without your own bias seeping into it like it it affects the way that you like create this is true of me i've done this where you know like i've created items or asked questions in ways that you know like bias the kinds of answers that you're going to get um and so i think yeah i think it's it's important to just um yeah to acknowledge that you're not going to be able to be totally neutral and i think to sort of address that head on or at least that's what i've been trying to do yeah. I mean, I would, I would wonder if, uh, you know, and, and so I think, uh, the, you know, from a graduate student perspective, those, you know, those formal contexts like teaching in the classroom and that kind of thing are one thing, but there's going to be a lot of informal stuff like mm-hmm. at, at events, at part, you know, shooting the shit at a lab meeting and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wonder if being in a lab that studies politics could, I mean, I, I could see it cutting different ways. Like, it could be a very sort of, like, activist lab that maybe isn't particularly tolerant. But I, I would guess that a lot of times, you know, that might be a lab where, one, you know, they their research needs to be able to, to sort of communicate with people from different backgrounds. And so they have to be in the habit of that. And that, that having someone with a different point of view, like you said, Alexa, might actually improve the research. Yeah. Whatever. I, I wonder if it's, in some ways could be harder for someone in a lab that's not explicitly talking about politics where it's just or know, that is right. but doesn't realize it right no, like oh, if you're, you're doing the, stuff on the research isn't right yeah yeah the research isn't overtly political yeah or i think but i think in many cases it is overtly mm-hmm. political but it has a liberal agenda without that yeah. being acknowledged yeah. right um but yeah where you're just and i mean yeah like i mean i just think that's about, a loaded like, thing to say without unpacking it but yeah. i'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> no no i know what you mean like there's there's a lot of work that does have some kind of uh i mean i think i think a lot of work is sort of openly activist and people don't don't try to hide that but there's also work where yeah there could be hidden biases i mean joe duarte has blogged before about the way openness items in the big five are written you know might be might have a sort of cosmopolitan urban kind of emphasis on like going to the opera and, and things that are sort of very kind of liberal, ex- liberal big city expressions of openness. Um, I think someone should do a measurement and variance study and see, cause I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting question, but yeah. So I, I think the, the, like those informal things where, and, and I think it is hard because especially it feels, especially recently that a lot that's going on in capital P politics is affecting people personally. So, you know, yeah. it, it, you have DACA recipients, you have, yeah. uh, um, you know, who are, who are feeling under threat and, and, you know, you have international students from countries that are on the ban list. Um, and so it's, it's affecting people personally and they're going to talk about it. Um, and, and I, you know, it's, it's easier and more comfortable to talk about some things if you feel like everyone agrees with you and everyone sees them from your point of view. But I do think in, in some of these settings, you know, it is important to sort of think about, like, don't assume unless you know one by one everybody in the room. Right. Don't assume. Which doesn't mean don't talk about them, right. right? And, like, one of the things that's been really fun about having the chance to know some graduate students with different political views, and especially ones who do want to talk about politics and stuff, is 
like learning how to express my views and, and defend them in a way that mm-hmm. isn't offensive to people who disagree with them, which is right. always a good skill, which yeah. relates to a later topic in our <laughs> podcast. So yes. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I think you can, you can um, look, that's a good point that you can look at it as an opportunity to elevate yourself. You know, if you, <laughs> you want to be selfish about it, you know, say that, yeah. uh, um, it's, you know, uh, yeah, it's a chance to step up and, and, I- and I actually yeah. put it in my diversity statement for my promotion materials where I had to talk about, you know, the students I've trained and so on. I think that I get, you know, like to the extent that we get credit for having diverse students, I think because supposedly it shows that we have a welcoming, inclusive lab. And part of that is being welcoming and inclusive to people with different political views. I, I listed that among the different ways in which my lab has had representation of underrepresented students. And I agree with you, Sanjay, that it's, it's a it's a dimension that's very different in many, many ways than other dimensions. And yeah, some people like their knee jerk reaction is it's not as important as the other dimensions. So therefore any effort to be sensitive to that issue is bad or we shouldn't. And I think you can say, look, there are probably bigger problems, but it's still a real problem and we can do something about it or at least a few yeah. things. We can't fix uh, it completely overnight. But Yeah. And also to your, to your earlier points, I mean, about like, you know, our willingness sometimes to sort of like even make fun of conservatives. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of thing like really undermines like values that liberals express that they have. And, and scientists also like, express. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, yeah. Like claims that we make as psychologists and scientists. Right. Um, so yeah, it really frustrates me when, you know, people are willing to stand up for other kinds of, um, or stand up against other kinds of like discrimination and prejudice, but are totally willing to, um, to make fun of conservatives. And that's how I felt, um, when I was moving from, uh, Toronto to Alabama, you know, like I heard all the time people saying like, like, oh my God, you're moving to Alabama. You're gonna, like, you're moving to this place that's like full of homophobes and racists and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, do you, do you hear what you're saying? Like, you're just like painting this entire state with this one brush, you know? Um, so I have, I sort of have a personal pet peeve about that kind of, um, that kind of hypocrisy. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we've actually answered the letter we've mm-hmm. more talked about. I think that maybe that's good actually in a way, like, I don't know that I have a whole lot of advice for someone on in the letter writer's point of view, because I do think there are risks that are associated with it. I think yeah. what, I, what I feel like I can speak to is myself and people like me trying to, to push for people to, to do better, to, to make it, you know, um, I mean, I'm glad that this, uh, this letter writer had such a positive experience. And, and I guess my message would be to yeah. everyone else to, to step up and, and, um, you know, try to treat students the same, even even if someone hasn't disclosed what their politics are, to, to you know to try to approach it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's move on because um, we've got, uh, and this will connect to our our main topic. I think in some interesting ways because we want to talk about disagreement. Uh, before we go on, though, I uh, um, we always like to to in at some point in the show uh, um, thank our listeners for listening and. Uh, um, yeah, we really appreciate letters. We, we love getting cool letters and interesting kind of situations to, to respond to. So if you have something that you would like us to discuss on a future episode, a conundrum, a, a situation, you can email us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. 
And uh, thanks also just to everyone who, you know, who communicates with us by, by emailing us or, or interacting on Twitter or Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. We really like to hear what people think about the podcast and people's ideas. Um, uh, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, that's great. If you rate us on iTunes, that helps people find out about us. Um, and uh, if you tell your friends, that's cool. And if you just like to listen, that's awesome, too. We love having having people listening and, and like knowing that, that we're doing something that people find interesting enough to have on the background while they're brushing their teeth or whatever people do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you, I don't, maybe I don't want to know uh, what people do when they, uh, <laughs> what people are when doing. Um, yeah, and if you're listening and you don't know where else to find us, uh, we're on the web, theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, I mentioned our, our email address already, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. And we're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. And we have a Facebook page too, The Black Goat. And uh, yeah, so that's how to reach us. Cool. So let's, uh, let's talk about our main topic. So we, we wanted to talk about disagreement. Um, and so it does, I think, connect to our letter in, in an interesting way, although it's a, a bit about some different sorts of disagreement. Um, so uh, a while back, we talked about, the three of us all talked about kind of our personal journeys with open science and replicability and kind of how, you know, 2011 was this sort of eye-opening year in a lot of ways. Um, and in our most recent episode, we were talking with Anna Alexandrova and about how this discussion is actually happening at, at a couple of levels. So on one level, we've been talking about sort of methods and practices and p-values and, and, you know, pre-registration and workflow and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, as Anna, I think, pointed out really well, that more broadly, there's a discussion about norms, about sort of how should we be doing science, what even is science or good and bad science or credible and not credible science. And so that, that means that we're, we're, you know, there's always scientific disagreement. We disagree about theories and what, you know, with studies and whatever, but that we're having this kind of broader, deeper meta discussion about, like, how do you even do science, what's credible evidence, et cetera. Um, and so for today's episode, we thought we'd talk about how we engage and how people can engage in these kinds of conversations and disagreements. Um, you know, so how do you disagree with people you have to work with, whether it's your, your colleagues in your department, whether it's collaborators or editors, and going the other way around, how do you work with the people you might disagree with? Because, uh, you know, we still have to get things done. Um, and then what do you do if you're at odds with a lot of people around you? So we want to talk a little bit about you know, some people might be the only one in their department or the only one they know of, or they don't feel comfortable talking to other people in their department or in a lab or in some other setting that's, that's important to them. Um, so that's kind of what we wanted to, to talk about today. And, and maybe to get things started, you know, how do you guys, because you can't argue about everything all the time. Um, I know sometimes I feel like I do, but, uh, <laughs> you know, then I just shut off Twitter and try to get something else better done. But like, how do you, how do you go about deciding when to engage either when to be the first to speak out about something or when something happens, how, whether to respond to it, whether to let it go. Like when you disagree with someone about open, let's, you know, in the realm of open science, reproducibility, these kinds of norms about how to do science. Yeah, I mean, I think one really important thing to talk about is that I, I walk away from 10 times more battles than I actually yeah. fight. And right. I think that's something that people might 
misperceive about you know people like us who have more public profiles and things like that and you know i feel guilty when people thank me for like fighting these battles or whatever and i'm like oh i actually like or or like i'll I'll take three days to decide whether to like a comment on psych map sometimes. <laughs> like sometimes I'll go back to it like five times and then like after six days be like, okay, I think I should like this comment. Um, it, so, and that's not even, you know, picking a battle or whatever. So I think it's really important to s- say that is, I think it's totally fine to not call out everything, not always stand up for your principles. You know, you can't. And to spend a long time deliberating like I, I know i don't think it's something many of these decisions to like engage in a debate or put yourself out there go out on a limb for something that you think is important that's not a decision to take lightly mm-hmm. in many cases and yeah i think it's it's okay to deliberate a long time and to often walk away i think um so the way that i started making decisions about this was so when i talked to um to undergrads about like giving them news that they don't want to hear um i sort of like so i will eventually get to our topic um but so my my undergrads in my one-on-one class always do really poorly on the first exam and i have like sort of like a a speech that i give them about how um i think that they're like the way to treat people that you have a lot of respect for is to sort of have high expectations for them to challenge them and to tell them when you like think that they you know like you have feedback that could make them do better and things like that um and so i think when i started trying to think about like how to pick my battles when it comes to open science stuff um one of the rules that i had was just like if it's a case where i really feel like um they're going to be worse off if i don't like if I don't tell them maybe something that like they've never considered before, um, about maybe like, so a research design or, you know, like an approach to, um, doing a study or something like that, um, or interpreting a study, analyzing data, things like that. If I, if I were to imagine that like they were a really important friend to me and what I would say to my friend, if I didn't want like them to do something that, you know, would ultimately be worse for them, um, then I would like bring it up. So, times that that would happen would be sometimes like at planning stages for graduate students like um theses and dissertations um when I thought that really like if if I were like if I'm going to be really invested in this person and the outcome of their project I need to be honest with them about what I think about this stuff um and I think for me um over time the cases where it is really like, I feel like it is really important to talk about these things have increased. Um, maybe because I'm more confident in how I feel about them or I feel more informed. Um, but, um, but yeah, like that, that was sort of like my rule for when to pick a battle or not. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's really interesting that there's, there is, you know, in science, critical discourse is a big part of being a scientist in some ways, right? And so someone gives a brown bag and, and you know, they're about a study they're planning and you see, a con- or even a study that they ran and, and you see a confound in it and, and, you know, it's normative to, like, talk about that, right? And so, right. you know, trying to, I think there are ways that we can fit some of these conversations in to that critical discourse where, where sometimes where, where you can say like, Oh, I see you're planning to measure your dependent variable seven different ways. You know, if you don't commit to one way of, of measuring it as your primary outcome, um, 
you know, mm -hmm. people might wonder if you just looked around or, or, and, you know, you're at risk of capitalizing on chance if you just kind of mm -hmm. you know, splash around in your data set after it comes in. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that might be a way, I think, you know, it is sometimes hard because these things feel like they have a kind of judgment dimension sometimes that, right. you know, for, for uh, you know, it's kind of interesting to, to, I don't want to go off on a total tangent, but to, you know, just to sort of wonder, like, why is it that having a confound is like morally neutral, <laughs> you know, like you could say like, oh, you should fix this confound, but saying, oh, you should like, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, make an analysis plan <laughs> before you look at your data uh, is like, oh, I'm calling you a dirty pee hacker or whatever. But, but right. yeah, so I think, I think that's, that's part of the picking the battles. Like if you feel like you can slip it into normal critical discourse and where you express it in a way and it'll be taken in a way that fits in, that's certainly a really good way of, of trying to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, what you said, Alex, is really interesting because for me, it is so much of that, what Sanjay's saying about, you know, can you do it in a way that won't make the person defensive? To me, depends on how high an opinion I have of the other person. So when I do engage, when I do disagree, it's usually mm -hmm. because I have a lot of respect for the other person and right. I think they will actually listen and they might even change my mind and mm -hmm. they're open to changing their mind. Otherwise, like I walk away. Like if I think there's very, very little chance that either side is going to change their mind, yeah. then. Well, and I think that I mean this slots a little bit into the question of like how you disagree because I think choosing when to disagree is in part related to like how are you going? How would you if you did? And I think when you take that kind of attitude, and I, I try really hard to adopt this as well. That you know I'm when I when I have disagreements with people, I see it as it's my goal and the onus is on me to persuade somebody and and the way I persuade a colleague is by assuming that they're intelligent and that they are rational <laughs> even, even if there's a part of yeah. me that thinks that they yeah. aren't and say look my my goal is to to bring you around to my point of view by by arguing with you about reason and evidence the same way that we do about science not by like shaming you or browbeating you or anything right. like that um, I mean, and there, you know, we can talk about whether there are times when like shaming and browbeating is appropriate, but I think a, a sort of certainly a, a first line if it's available is to approach it as I respect you enough to treat you as a person who's who's intelligent and open minded enough to be persuaded. And so I'm going to take that approach with you. Right. I think, you know, when you guys are talking about like the, the concern about sounding judgmental, of course, I worry about that as well. Right. Um, and the concern, I think, for me is like that the person will hear what I'm saying as like a, you know, I think that I care more about doing good science than you do or something like that. Right. Um, but one thing I try to remind myself, and I think this is very related to what you're saying, Sanjay, about sort of like giving people the benefit of the doubt or at least giving some people the benefit of the doubt. Um, is that like, I really, I really doubt that most of the people that I talk to, the most of the psychologists that I talk to care less about doing good science than I do. Um, so that, what that suggests is that if we have, if there's a discrepancy in like the way that we would approach these kinds of issues, it's probably not because like I have better values than they do or something like that. It's probably a difference in, you know, like the degree to which we've been exposed to different ideas or the, you know, um, our understanding of different issues. And so like, I think that helps me at least, at least in my mind, the experience is that like, I'm, I'm just interacting with someone who has different information than I do, um, rather than trying to like convince someone that they should like 
uh, you know, value scientific truth more than they actually do or something. Yeah. And I think another way to show respect and to try to make the disagreement more productive is to take the other person's perspective in the sense specifically of telling them what it would take to change your mind. So I feel like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to change their mind, but I also want to give them a chance to change my mind. And so telling them like, these are the assumptions I'm making. These are the reasons, you know, and so in order to change my mind, you would either have to show me that some of the assumptions I'm making are wrong or show me the flaw in like my reasoning. Um, yeah, like I'm trying to think one, one like big disagreement I can remember engaging in that I was really torn and I'm not sure if I made the right call was on PsychMap when the facial feedback study came out. FizzTrack was kind of defending the original finding and asking why people were so convinced by the triple R and I engaged with him and like part of what I was trying to do is say like, well, you want to, do you, you really, if you really want to know why, and I'm going to, you know, get like an, assume good faith here, 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 here's why, here's why I think the replication was more convincing than the original and so on. Um, and I think that if nothing else, like at least you're, yeah, I think it, it's an important way to make the disagreement more likely to be productive. And it's also just, I think ethically the right thing to do with someone that you disagree with is, is give them a chance and And I think assume that they're, they have good faith. Yeah. I think in, in those public settings, it's also always important to keep in mind that your audience isn't just the person you're talking to. Um, and so, you know, you should, you owe it to the person you're directly engaging with to be this way, but also that even if you don't persuade them, that mm-hmm. there are, you know, if, you, if you're doing it, whether it's an in-person public setting, like a, you know, a debate or a conversation in a group setting, or whether it's an online setting, that, uh, um, you know, a good reason to engage this way, a, an additional good reason to engage this way is that there are people watching who might be open to your arguments, even if you can't persuade, you know, if you just are at loggerheads with the person you're talking to. Um, yeah, there's this interesting, uh, it, it sort of came across my Twitter feed like a year or two ago, um, which I'll put in the, sh- in the episode notes. Um, uh, Paul Graham, who I think is a, a startup investor, but wrote this uh, essay called How to Disagree um, that's on his webpage. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because it, it sort of, it's like these different levels of disagreement. And, you know, it starts with like the lowest level is name calling and then ad hominem and then responding to tone. And then just contradicting someone and saying, no, I don't believe that. And he kind of, you know, at the fourth level, counter argument is the first like actual sort of substantive response mm-hmm. um, and where it's like, you say this, but I say that is a counter argument. And, and, you know, a step higher is the refutation. You say this. And so I'm going to disagree with this. And then refutate, refuting the central point is kind of for him, the sort of the highest level of that. And I think it's, yeah. you know, it's, good to i mean one of the things i really like about it it kind of distinguishes among different kinds of substantive engagement um that you know i i think and i think in order to like refute and especially refute someone's central point you have to engage with what they're saying like if it's you said this but i said that i don't have to figure out what you were saying i can just say well here's my piece but Mm -hmm. you know when you actually listen to where people are coming from and especially when you list, you have to listen to what their priorities are, what's important to them to figure out what the central point is. And I think that's a really critical part of disengaging, or sorry, disagreeing, not disengaging, um, is, is uh, yeah, just taking someone's arguments seriously and taking their values and motivations yeah. and priorities seriously, not in a way that you're going to attack them like an ad hominem, but taking their motivations seriously, like what do they actually care about? And then can I, you know, 
can I try to disagree with them in a way that that sort of um, gets at the heart of the issue for them, but also on their broader values level, maybe you know maintain some respect for for probably what's shared values. Like you said, Alexa, most people want to do good science. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of picking your battles, uh, an important thing is when can you do you have the like cognitive and emotional resources to engage at those higher levels on that pyramid? Like if you're, if you're tempted to respond in a a way that like is at the lower levels, (laughs) then maybe walk away and come back when you're calmer. Unfortunately, Um, that also takes cognitive resources to recognize. That's true. I I don't always do that so well. I try, but yeah. Uh, Sorry, I didn't interrupt. (laughs) No, no, no. That's, Um, yeah. Well, I think that speaking of interrupting, Yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about um, the related topic of what the what the optimal level of disagreeableness is, um, because well, so partly for partly just in life in general, I'm curious about what what the what the best level of disagreeableness is, um, and so I think when it comes to open science stuff um, in there is an extent to which you can be too agreeable, right? So care too much um, what other people think of you, care too much about sort of like not Keeping making waves, mm-hmm. and then you sort of um, like don't don't voice the things that you really care about. And this goes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about like my sort of bar for speaking up being times when I was really convinced that it was, you know, like important um, for the other person's sake for me to tell them what I thought. Um, you know, so that's, those are times when I can sort of convince myself, like, this is more important than like the awkwardness I'm going to feel as I bring it up. And Um, not to get, yeah, go ahead. Well, not to get too personality psych on you, but like we often talk about agreeableness as if it's clearly a good thing. Like, you know, it's the positive, socially desirable end of that, that big five factor. Um, but there's a real cost and one of those is not sticking up for people who need you to stick up for them. And so especially if you are in a position of power or privilege or things like that, like, you know, being, being too agreeable, not can not only hurt you, but it can hurt people that you have a responsibility to help. And so, yeah, like connecting back to picking your battles. So there are times when I've, I would have walked away, but I decided to like try to, you know, find some courage to Mm -hmm. have that battle because it would affect other people if I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think that's like a, a place where disagreeableness can come in handy is fulfilling those responsibilities, even when it, it's like comes at the cost of people thinking you're disagreeable. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to pull the interpersonal circumplex in here and say this isn't about <laughs> disagreeableness. <laughs> this is, you know, uh, um, agreeableness, you know, I, I don't want to get into the, you know, I think we're, I think there's a way that, you know, the, the word is a shitty word that everybody who studies the big five <laughs> thinks it's a shitty word, but we use it anyway. But uh, um, I, I think that let's set aside the personality stuff. The distinction here is between sort of caring and being a pushover and, and sort of, I think there is a way that people are sometimes socialized to think that the way to be a nice person is to go along with things. And I think kind of, you know, what we're saying is there's a way you can, you can care about somebody. You can be compassionate to where they're coming from. Um, while still standing up for a principle, and in fact, standing up for the principle might have a very, you know, caring and compassionate reason that you want science to do good for the world. Um, so setting aside the, the motivations, but I think the beha- behaviorally speaking, what that means is that 
disagreeing with people, you need to be able to disagree with people, or, or conversely, you need to not fall into agreeing with people for the sake of getting along. Um, and I think that is a really hard thing. And I think that's something, you know, you see in sort of, I think this was more true kind of earlier when sort of reproducibility and open science was on the table, that it kind of, I think early on, tended to attract people, or not attract people, but it selected out people who really wanted to get along with others who didn't want to rock the boat. And so the people that ended up being filtered in were people who were willing to be mm -hmm. disliked, who were willing to rub people the wrong way. Um, yeah. And there's different reasons for that. Some of that is personality. Some of that is stru being structurally powerful. Some of that is having right. really sort of overriding sense of principle or something. Um, but I think this, you know, there's this stereotype of sort of people who care about open science that, that I've heard voiced sometimes about being strident or being, you know, whatever. I think some of that is just um, how people react to people who disagree about sort of morals issues so some of that is over exaggerated but a little of that is like yeah like it's it's you know it's people who are willing to to go against the grain and to say like i think the way a lot of people are doing things is is wrong or needs to change right but i mean i wish we lived in a world where that was completely separate from caring but it's certainly not perceived that way if you do push back on things people are going to think that you oh, sure. don't care about hurting people's feelings and yeah. that yeah, like that you mm -hmm. lack compassion and so on. And I think it's it's important to point out that they actually can be separated, that you can be compassionate and caring and still criticize the people that you care about. And yeah, feel in that fact, you care sometimes about. that is the more compassionate and caring thing to do. Right. Like like I, I know that there are times with with my students, for instance, where like I think that, yeah, in order for me to be the com compassionate, caring advisor, I need to be like a little bit mean to them. Um, and that's like really unpleasant to me. I hate doing that. But like, I think, yeah, um, I sort of force myself to do that once in a while because I think that it, it is actually the better thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think like <clears throat> coding that as being mean is kind of interesting. And, and you know, we can unpack that because I mean, in some ways, yeah, what, what, I, what I tell myself when I'm doing that is, like, I'm, I'm telling somebody a hard truth that they need to hear. Yeah. I don't, uh, but I right. don't think of it as being mean, even if it's upsetting to them, uh, I guess, to me. <laughs> so it is sort of interesting. I wonder if there's, like, yeah, a gender thing right. there or something. Um, uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and so this, you know, one of the things that I think is important, if you're going to be, so, so you're going to be having these conversations. If, if you've... You know, if, if you've really sort of adopted or, or sort of been persuaded that, like, some things need to change and not, not just sort of superficially, but, like, some deep norms need to change, that's sooner or later going to, whether you're, like, outspoken publicly or, or whatever, but sooner or later you're going to have a collaborator who sees things differently, you're going to have lab mates, you're going to have colleagues and peers, you're going to have editors and reviewers who say, you know, why are you doing it this way or you should do it this way that you don't feel comfortable with. And so how do you, yeah. Um, how do you sort of prepare yourself for those things? So, I mean, I, I think one thing that, you know, we've talked about before, I think on the podcast is, is, you know, sort of finding, finding allies and finding 
a network of people that, uh, um, you know, can tell you, you know, when you have that feeling of like, I'm the only person that thinks this, it's very easy to start thinking you're crazy or that you're wrong or, or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you might be, you might be misreading something or overstepping. So having people who in general see you on the same page, but who won't necessarily, like you trust them that they tell you if you're off base, but that can also be a support network to say, nope, no, you, you know, this thing you're saying, like, you're right about that and you should stand up for it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you, how do you guys find those people? Because I feel like earlier on, like now I found a lot of people and, you know, organizations like SIPs and, and, you know, things like that. Have, and there's more people in my department now who I can have these conversations with, but especially early on, like how did, when, when you were reading like false positive psychology and, you know, or at whatever point in your history, you know, you were kind of having your own awakening. Like how did you, how did you find your people and your sense of, uh, you know, your, your sense of like, these are the people that are going to tell me I'm not insane. I don't know. That's a really good question. Like I'm trying to remember, I think that some of it was kind of a surprise to find out that some people who I had made friends with and knew independent of that. And then like later we realized like we both care about this and that was really cool. Um, yeah, I think, you know, social media makes it a lot easier. Sips helps. Mm -hmm. Um, also just generally, like there were some people who I knew, even if they didn't agree with me, like they would enjoy the intellectual challenge. Like I remember Brent Roberts and Chris Fraley at university of Illinois. So at the time I was at Washington university in St. Louis, so not too far. So I remember talking to them about it and like, yeah, I could have predicted that they would at least find it really fun to talk about like, is science, you know, doing things wrong and so on. So I think some of it is just, yeah, there might be people who even if they don't agree with you, like, you know, will will be people who make you think better about these things. And I would, I, those people are so valuable in general in life. Yeah. Collect those people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. I think also just reaching out, like I have people contact me out of the blue, some of whom I didn't know at all, some of whom I knew a little bit and ask me, like, tell me what's going on, you know, with some conflict they had either, yeah, with an editor or with a, with their department or with a collaborator and like, ask for advice on how to handle it. And often I don't think I have very useful answers, but at least I can be like, yeah, wow. You know, I've heard of that happening to other people or that's happened to me or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And being at least knowing that they're not crazy and that they're not alone yeah. and getting a sounding board, I think can be really helpful. So I think like if it's something that, that you care a lot about and you know, there are other people out there who care a lot about, they probably would be happy to hear from mm-hmm. you or at least, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not crazy the- to reach out kind of out of the blue on those things. When you were talking earlier, Sanjay, about um, how sort of open science has maybe selected for people who are a bit higher on disagreeableness, um, I think that the nice thing about the way things are now is that there's like maybe something like a critical mass of people where there's now like room for the agreeable people to join. Um, so like I've I've always sort of like admired. I think I think that I'm too high on agreeableness, and I've always sort of admired. Um, the people who are more willing to sort of stand up for these things that they think are important and they're willing to sort of rub people the wrong way. And, um, I think there's some sort of, there's some bravery in that. Um, but then as, you know, as there are more and more people who you can identify with and talk to about these things, um, and not feel like sort of like the only one who, you know, holds a certain view or something like that, then, um, 
then it's easier for for more agreeable people to to go along with that because now there's now there's a group you know i mean yeah i think the you know the, the things that yeah i think the things that help are right having people because then then it's like oh i do have my people that i do get along with and it's it's because you know we've you know we've been persuaded of the same things and we we sort of share some some values and some norms yeah i mean i think also you know things that that make you so obviously like personality is one thing that can make you uh free from the influence of others if you just don't give a shit but you know also things like i mean tenure helps obviously and that's something you don't have a lot of control over but that that has that has helped for me i mean i started blogging right around the time i got tenure i didn't start blogging Mm -hmm. to talk about these issues but they started happening shortly after and that kind of became what a lot of what i blogged about I think other things, you know, for people who are earlier in their careers, I think something we don't talk about enough in general in the field is like having other options and how liberating that is. You know, there's this, uh, I, I think the, the definition of social power that resonates the most with me is control over other people's valued outcomes. And so if you have other valued outcomes that the people in your field don't control like you'd perfectly be happy doing something else or or you know you have some way of kind of getting happiness and satisfaction that other people can't touch whether it's personal or professional or whatever then that kind of frees you from a lot of influence right that that mm-hmm. if if you're like well i'm you know and this is like i, I this is like a super privileged tenure person saying this but like you know if, if you're a grad student you're like well I'm gonna do it the way I think is right and if if I can't get a job fuck it I'll go you know I can't get a job in academia then I'll, I'll you know there are other things that I would be you know excited to do in life um, I think that's very different than if you feel sort of desperate to have to you know have to get a tenure track job or whatever now I realize a lot of people do want that so it's it's not like that's a free choice but yeah having other other things other and so maybe it's also just having parts of your life that are important to you that that other people can't control whether it's your friends your professional connections within the field that aren't gonna drop you because of you know because because jpsp won't accept any of your (laughs) pre-registered papers that's a made-up thing by the way but yeah but actually i mean that's what i was thinking about like this is getting a little bit abstract but that yeah if we want to give people ways to actualize their values and achieve their values and not have the concentration be in a few people and a few values that you have to accept in order to succeed in the field that has a lot of implications for how we should structure our field who should have the power and like and protecting things like peer review or awards or things like that making sure that those decisions are made on the basis that don't require people to sacrifice things they don't want to sacrifice, right? Like it shouldn't be the case that in order to make it in academia or to be successful or whatever, that you have to accept a very narrow set of values or, well, yeah, no, I'm rambling now because I I mean, let's make it a little more concrete, right? Like I think that, uh, so, so last, last week uh, in our first year graduate seminar, um, I did a little guest thing on pre-registration and I kind of talked about what it is and, and why it's important and how you do it and whatever. And one of the grad students asked, you know, was like, okay, so, you know, how do I, uh, um, you know, let, let's, let's say I'm persuaded by all this and, you know, 
said he was, so I'll take his word for it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm, I'm looking at, you know, my profession and this might not be valued or recognized or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, sh- how do I find that balance? And, you know, my answer was like, first, things are changing and that may not actually be as true as some people think it is. And it's not going to be as mm-hmm. true by the time you're on the job market. So mm-hmm. one was things mm-hmm. are changing. But two, as I said, you know, I, I think, and I think it might be useful for us to talk about both perspectives. I think what you're saying, Samin, is kind of, you know, what I said to him was like, for me, where I sit, it's my job to, to help change things so that that's less and less true. And so, mm-hmm. you know, things like uh, changing how search committees uh, um, make decisions, things like changing how granting agencies make decisions, things like, you know, uh, um, yeah, these other things, and 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 so that's that is a place where you know I think we can we can change things, and and you know having these being able to have persuasive reasoning and evidence based conversations with people, mm. you know that we're talking about, and if you've if you've honed your arguments by talking to colleagues, then you're really well prepared when you go and talk to somebody new because you, you know what well, they're going to say, well, what if? And you're like, oh, let me give you five things and point you to a paper and whatever. Um, uh, uh, and so you're in a much better position to be effective in making those changes. Yeah. I mean, Samin, you talked about, mm-hmm. you've talked about that a little bit before, how like having had a lot of these conversations, you kind of you know what a lot of the, the sort of questions and the disagreements are going to be and, and you're kind of, you're more ready for that than you used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm <laughs> missing the connections. I, have, I think I have a cold and I think I'm like having a hard time following the thread and my mind is going to all kinds of places. Like I'm thinking about academic freedom and what that means and does that mean that, like, well, the idea that we're supposed to be protecting scientists to be able to go against norms and values that are not scientific, right? Like, so being able to say politically unpopular things or being able to challenge famous people or being able to, you know, whatever, all these things that are not necessarily, that are scientifically perfectly sound, but then we evaluate people based on those things or we exclude them or we punish them and so on. And part of what, I guess what I was trying to get at is that we should be creating a system where those things have have less influence, where like decisions about who gets funding, who gets published, who gets jobs, who gets awards. Like, we should be protecting people who say and do things that might be unpopular but that are perfectly fine from a scientific perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that argument gets uh, used also to say, well, we need to be pluralistic even about scientific values, and so we need to let not have narrow definitions of what's good or bad in the peer review process or in the grant funding or whatever, and not say you have to pre-register, you have to be transparent, or you have to do this or that. But I think that's different. That, that Within the realm of science, we can be exclusive and we can be narrow and we can say these are the better practices and we should value those over less good practices. The problem is when we're implementing decisions based on non-scientific values. And yeah. Yeah, so I don't. I'm trying to like get the thread back of how this connects to <laughs> finding allies and disagreement and all that. Um, well, I think but I think the point is yeah. creating an environment where you can disagree about things, and as long as you're on scientifically solid ground, then we should we should want to foster that kind of plur- plurality of views and ability to challenge things, ability to say unpopular things, and be a critic, and so on. 
that's something I don't think we've done a very good job of as a field and part of what mm-hmm. I think the replicability movement is trying to change. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, maybe, maybe this is kind of bringing it back a little bit is, is sort of like, what are the boundaries of what, what it's okay to disagree about and what it's not? And I think mm-hmm. both saying it's inbounds, it's fair to, to have disagreement about things like what's credible evidence and, and, you know, and that, that it's out of bounds to use disagreements about, let's say, your politics or about, mm-hmm. you know, power and stature or other things to sort of wield those in the scientific realm. Um, yeah. Uh, Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> so, so, so let's, I mean, it, you know, this issue of kind of being isolated, like if, if you were an early career researcher now, you're, you're in grad school, you're, and you're kind of, you're coming across a lot of these arguments, and, and you're kind of persuaded by them. I mean, the, the student that, that asked this question in class, I thought it was a really good question. It's one that comes up over and over again. Like, what would you be doing right now? You don't have tenure, you don't have all your social connections, you haven't found your people, and let, let's say you're 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 absorbing all this you're you're getting it from journals and social media and wherever else but maybe the people around you aren't you're not in a place where all of your lab mates and and advisors and everybody see things this way like what what would you do if you were in that position right now are you like asking us to answer that question (laughs) that's not a rhetorical the answer to that question is like i mean i want to answer on your behalf samin but like the answer to that question is like we don't know right like, how could you possibly know how you would act in that situation when you're, all of your social influences are different? Sorry, I didn't mean that, like, like, what would you descriptively? I mean, like, what, what advice would you give to yourself in that? Like, what, what do you think someone in that position could do to sort of navigate the world? Maybe the answer is also, I, don't I see. Know, but, yeah. Yeah, I see. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, go to six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you said in this hypothetical scenario, the person's already on Twitter, but I think like getting on Twitter, I mean, for me, that was a huge um, source. And I think a lot of people I interact with on Twitter don't realize how big of a source of um, not just support that's like too soft of a word, but it like it's a very concrete thing that it does for me. It gives me a sense of community, but it also like gives me arguments to think about and potentially incorporate into mm-hmm. my thinking um i mean it's ha- like the nice thing about twitter is it's all around the world and so the time zones it's fun like i could be lying in bed and like oh i can't sleep i'll check what's going on, on twitter and like someone says something that makes me think really differently about something or that or sometimes it's just like a nice thing that makes me feel good or whatever but all of those things like go a really really long way at least for me and i don't know if there's an individual difference there i think some people don't get much out of those kinds of interactions but for me it's it's really nice and it it does a lot of that like giving me both uh emotional and cognitive resources to to deal with these issues and to refine my thinking and my drive to to care about these issues yeah Yeah, i think that i mean the two things that you said i think they they actually the overlap of them is really important so you said finding community and then you said sort of kind of a more informational function of like seeing arguments and papers and blog posts and things and and I think the overlap is really interesting which is finding a community of people who are thinking about and talking about these issues and and having a sense not just like I have this sort of general generic sense of social support but that actually like yeah people 
people like I'm starting to see things a certain way and mm-hmm. it kind of going back to that like I'm not crazy thing like people there are other people who see them this way and yeah. and more and more people are disagreeing and so you get to see different sides of like people within the sort of open science movement are disagreeing about things and and so it's not like just a homogenous like you know join the cult kind of thing it's actually like a lot of really sharp disagreement um that sharpens your own thinking yeah right yeah i mean i think also just you know i would say to someone in that position like start adopting whatever practices you can and uh um Mm -hmm. You know, and don't beat uh, yourself up for yes. not being perfect or not fighting uh, every battle or whatever, letting things slide. I mean, yeah. I, I only have to think back like 48 hours to think of a time that I bit my tongue and I feel kind of bad about it. I feel like maybe I should have spoken up, mm-hmm. but I can very clearly think of a specific thing that happened in the last two days. Um, so it's you're, even people. Yeah, it's not on you to fight all those battles. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe that's a good, good place to end. Yeah, it's not on you to fight all those battles. I, I feel like uh, sometimes we have like a really snarky line that I'm just like, that'll be the title of our <laughs> episode today. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. that one will, be, I don't know. Uh, we'll figure yeah. it out later. Um, well, cool. This has been fun. Thanks to everyone for listening uh, to another episode of The Black Goat. Uh, we will be back in two more weeks. And thank you all. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>